For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sunday, July 2, 2023. I'm Anthony Davis. Welcome to The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. You can support my work and independent journalism at patreon.com slash five minute news. Our guest today was the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden in 2020. He's a writer, speaker, organizer, activist, and co-host of the iGen Politics podcast. Victor Shee, welcome to The Weekend Show. Thank you. After a long week, this is uh, the best way to end it. So thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm, I'm so thrilled that this is how you choose to, to relax. <laughs> um, you, you tweeted on uh, Friday, you said the Supreme Court overturned the right to an abortion, dismantled affirmative action, said all businesses can deny service to the LGBTQ plus community and struck down President Biden's student forgiveness program all in one year. You said you bet Gen Z is pissed off. Um, let's just, I want to talk about these, these issues independently, obviously. And I mean, you could say that, you know, many of those, but for the, uh, for the abortion decision all happened in the last week. And, and that obviously is very worrying for anybody that cares about people other than themselves. And I think that's what a lot of this boils down to. Just kind of give me your reaction as a 21 year old to, you know, the state of America this week. You know, I think it comes as no surprise that, you know, the Supreme Court has never been perfect. It's never handed down decisions that everyone likes or everyone will agree with. But the speed at which they're dropping these decisions in which, you know, the vast majority of the people, especially young people, don't agree with is astonishing to me. And that's where I think kind of that tweet really um, kind of came to me is that in one year we saw the right to an abortion uh, go down. We saw affirmative action basically go down. We saw um, businesses being able to deny uh, LGBTQ plus people the right uh service uh, go down. We also saw today President Biden's student loan forgiveness uh, program go down. So I think on all of those cylinders, it's so, I think, just indicative to Gen Z of institutions that aren't willing to deliver for us and care about our lives. And that's where I think so much of this frustration um, from Gen Z comes. And if you look at polling, if you look at the attitudes of Gen Zers as they relate to the Supreme Court, it's at, it's at an all-time low. Public confidence in the Supreme Court is at an all-time low because of these issues and because of these decisions in which these Supreme Court just Justices just aren't ruling in a way that benefits us. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of Gen Zers now turn to other kind of avenues of change. We can't rely on our Supreme Court. We can't uh, look at our Supreme Court and have confidence that it will do the right right thing. And so, um, you know, it's concerning that it all happened in a year and the brazenness, brazenness in which it happened should concern everyone who cares about democracy and our rule of law and our, just our systems of government, I think. Let's talk about the um, the the deal to cancel or reduce federal student loan debt first of all because you know you, you you've been a student right so you you probably do you have debt around your neck is that something that you personally are experiencing or people you know 
I know a lot of people. Fortunately, I um, do not have any debt around my neck. I have parents who are supporting me, and I also go to a school that isn't quite expensive as other schools, um, as it's a state public uh, state university. But I do know a lot of people who are um, suffering from that issue, unfortunately. Because it goes right through to adulthood. I mean, I know people who are in their 30s and are still having to fight off debt agencies from student loans because they've moved the loan from agency to agency to try and reduce the payments. And in the long run, it means that they just stuck with the debt forever. Yeah, the, I mean, this is, yeah. Go on. I mean, this is something that affects all generations, but particularly younger ones. I mean, with this increasing cost of college, and I was having this conversation with a person who goes to University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, which is the state that I'm from, and in-state tuition is, you know, $13,000, $14,000 in that range, but it costs more It costs more to go to UIUC as an in-state college student than it does to travel abroad to Greenland and go to, like, the University of Greenland or a college mm-hmm. international, and I think that is a real problem, and it's only increasing. It's not going down any price, and so, yes, you know, this has been a problem for a while, but for this generation, we see just our chances of post-secondary education becoming slimmer and slimmer because it's become harder to um, afford it. And I think that's part of what this program was meant to do was to give people that chance to go to college and say, look, while it might be expensive, we will have your backs and we can help you a little bit as you navigate such kind of expensive higher education costs. There does seem to be a kind of cultural thing in the United States where people with conservative leanings just don't want any generosity towards people, whether it be minority groups or whether it be young people there is this desire that you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you know if you want to achieve the american dream you have to do it all by yourself and 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 you know the us is suffering the same economic problems as most other major economies which is that wages did not rise in line with inflation and so you know no one can afford to buy a house on a on a regular wage anymore as they used to you know when i was a kid and and so what what, what do you think it is culturally about this lack of generosity because it's you know it's not socialism socialism is you know i'm sure that's what a lot of republicans are are using to describe what joe biden is seeking to do it isn't it's just the desire to give americans the chance to actually get on in life well what's extraordinary about this moment and i remember this really vividly is you know you think back to um the paycheck uh protection program the ppp loans and, you know, you saw all of these Republicans at that time come out and say, you know, we support this. They benefited from themselves. And so when you look at kind of their stances on that, they called that capitalism. They said, you know, the loans that you are forgiving under this administration, that is good for us. That is good for our constituents. But why isn't the same for, you know, students? Why isn't the same for the people who actually need this? You know, you think of even big banks. I mean, it was so quick, the pace at which they bailed out big banks and businesses when they failed. But what about students? What about working families? What about people who have, you know, saddled all all this debt but can't afford to pay it off that's what this program is helping but somehow republicans are saying you know this program you know should not be benefiting them but you know we want programs that will benefit us and that's the type of i think generosity that is really shameless in our country and generosity for me but not everyone else and that's um just hypocrisy in broad daylight and i think that's something that we saw clearly from the president this week calling out these Republicans who accepted PPP loan forgiveness um, programs, you know, from this administration, but ended up not supporting President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. And I think that just the hypocrisy is shameless. And it, it's something is culturally that there is this kind of thing that is infecting our politics where we only want the thing that benefits, you know, us individually and, you know, the wealthiest among us, the people who have more, the most privilege. But we don't want the things that will benefit the people who actually work hard for these things, the people who stand to benefit the most from them. And that, I think, says a lot about our country and is a problem. 
The uh, 6-3 decision with the Republican justices in the majority said the Biden administration overstepped its authority with the plan and that it leaves borrowers on the hook for repayments that are expected to resume in the fall. Uh, The court held that the administration needed Congress's endorsement before undertaking so costly a program. The majority rejected arguments that a bipartisan 2003 law dealing with national emergencies, known as the HEROES Act, gave Biden the power that he claimed. Joe Biden actually has another plan now, doesn't he? I mean, he, he, he was immediately on television. He was immediately making a, doing a press conference. He was immediately looking at alternative ways to give students this forgiveness because it was part of his election manifesto. Yeah. And like you said, he promised this on the campaign trail. He promised that he would forgive student loans for you know millions of people. That's what he did. The Supreme Court uh, overturned that program. And what we saw was in response, I think, is so important for people to understand, because, you know, there's I know there's a lot of complaining about his age. There's a lot of, you know, complaining that he's too old, that he's too out of touch. But you just have to look at what's happened this week. I mean, we saw it right after the affirmative um, action case, too. We can talk about that more. But we saw it right after the affirmative action case where the Supreme Court basically struck down that program. The minister responded within hours said, you know, look, we are going to have your backs. We are going to give colleges the guidance they need. We're going to make sure that colleges can still accept a diverse class and that the educational experience for young people will still be worth it. And we saw that right after the day after that, uh, with the student loan forgiveness program, you saw this administration come out and find different avenues and different tools to still make sure that student um, loan borrowers can still access that opportunity. Sure, it might not be the easiest. Sure, it might take longer. But that's, I think, the commitment that this administration is taking. And there is no one who has fought harder for this issue than I think Joe Biden. I think that comes with as much as we complain about his age, that comes with this inherent ability to know kind of how to navigate this situation that comes with experience and wisdom. And I think that goes far too often, at least in the media, um, overlooked and unappreciated. And, you know, I think it's an undue attack on the president. But what we saw in response to the student loan forgiveness program, I hope shows everyone that this is a president who is committed to having the backs of people who are struggling the most. And that is, to me, at least what's most remarkable about, the, about this is even with the Supreme Court decision, even with such a far-right Supreme Court, you still have a president who is finding every single kind of tool and resource in his pocket to make sure that people can still access the um, opportunity and relief that they need. I I watched a couple of these speeches that he's made in the the last week. I watched them live. You know, obviously I'm going to watch him, but I watched them live. He was genuinely emoting, like he's genuinely upset about this. He really feels for young people in these situations because of the promise that he made. Why is there, you've mentioned his age a few times, why is there a kind of ageism about Joe Biden? Yes, he's 80, but then again, so's Harrison Ford, and he's just made a made, made new Raiders movie. I mean, you know, I really, I really feel like, because, you know, Biden is kind, and this is what I got from these, from these, speeches that he made or these impromptu press conferences is that there was an inherent kindness in him much kinder at 80 than a lot of people would be at 20 yeah yeah right and and compassion yes yes tell me about how you know is there much ageism from young people towards biden who think that biden's got their backs or they just care about the policy no i i think in general it's hard for young people to look at you know an 80-year-old, especially if it's an 80-year-old in politics, and say, look, I feel that passionately about them. There's just, I think, an inherent kind of 
age generation difference that um, is hard to overcome. But at the end of the day, if you look at polling and if you look at kind of attitudes among Gen Zers and kind of what they're what they are going to do in 2024, what you see overwhelmingly is that, yes, people are concerned about age. But what people are more concerned about is the threat that the Republican Party poses. And also they acknowledge on so many different fronts the ways that this administration has delivered for them. I mean, you talk about climate change with the Inflation Reduction Act. You talk about what he's done with the Student Loan Forgiveness Program with so many issues. They see this and they appreciate that. And at the end of the day, come time to vote. I think that's what they'll be voting for. They're not going to be voting on age. They're not going to be voting on, you know, President Biden, his, you know, 80 year old age, but they're going to be voting on his policies and what he's been able to do for people. And you mentioned his compassion and his empathy. And I think that's something that I wish got more attention. And I wish he was out in public more um, on the campaign trail, you know, greeting people, having that face uh, FaceTime with voters, because that's the part of Joe Biden that people don't really get to experience. You know, people um, in this administration, I think just in terms of the presidency at the White House, I was at the White House last year. They're very protective of the president, which for, you know, good reason. But I wish they got more out in the public better because that's it's during those moments when that compassion and empathy do shine through the most. When he's in that line, you know, taking pictures with voters, spending hours talking to voters after an event, that's what matters. And that's what people don't really cover. And, you know, just to give people who may not know President Biden a little bit about his background, you know, this is someone who's struggled immensely throughout his life. You know, he lost his wife. He lost his child. He lost his son, you know, Beau Biden to cancer. This is someone who's gone through so much adversity. So just as kind of an inherent person, as a fundamental human, he comes to this with a set of decency and with a set of kind of humanity that I don't think we often see in politicians. And I think for a lot of young people, you know, we look at politicians as being out of touch. We look at what happens in D.C. as being out of touch. But President Biden, at the end of the day, he really understands the concerns because he has experienced it himself. And that, I think, really has ripple effects when it comes to policy, because the policies that he's thinking of are things that will affect ordinary people, not that will affect, you know, the richest among us. Those are things that will impact working class families. And that's what really matters. And that's what I hope that everyone will understand. That's what I hope we'll see more of as 2024 rolls around is Joe Biden on the campaign trail, having that one to one, you know, interaction with voters and really showing that human, that human side of him, because that's what to me is most powerful is that he might not be the most exciting. He might not be a Bernie Sanders, but at the end of the day, he is deeply human and decent. And that is something that I think we can all appreciate. Well, it's better than having a fascist as a, yes, exactly. as a president. I mean, just yeah. a small, you know, small difference. Small there. difference. Um, here's the other thing that I've been thinking about, uh, Victor, which is that, you know, we see a lot of adults, white, wealthy adults saying, well, you know, why should young people be getting student loan forgiveness? But And we see a lot of young Democrats who are publicly saying, you know, this is what we need, or progressive thinkers. But what about the kind of young conservatives? Uh, what are they saying? Are the young conservatives who have student loan debt, uh, whose side are they on? Because surely they're not going to, I mean, they must be having to like fight their own ideology. Because, you know, they're going to lose out here, aren't they? So I'll say, you know, there aren't many young conservatives out there, but the other day I was doing this interview on News Nation with this young conservative from the University of Pennsylvania, and we were talking about, you know, this student loan forgiveness, you know, decision by the Supreme Court and President Biden's um, response to that. And, and she was saying, you know, she acknowledges the fact that 
prices for college are way too high. And I think that's something that we can all agree on. There are things that affect every single young person, no matter if you're um, Republican or Democrat, that everyone can agree on. Sure, there might be on the fringes people on the right who might say, you know, college isn't that expensive, but, you know, they're probably also the richest and most privileged in our Mm -hmm. society. But just among your common young person, there is an acknowledgement that this is a real issue. And that's why you're seeing in polling this issue of student debt so high is because this affects all of us. The outcome might be different in terms of policy. Maybe some people think that we should strike at the root of the issue and, you know, go after colleges. Some people might think that, you know, what's happening right now with student forgiveness is a Band-Aid. But at the end of the day, we all acknowledge the fact that, you know, this is what's happening. I think the disconnect we're seeing from young Republicans right now is, you know, they want to find a reason to support the Republican Party. I think at the end of the day, they still really deeply believe that fiscal conservatism is the best way to go. And I think that's why they want someone like President Biden to go after colleges. But I think the disconnect that we're seeing right now is that there is no policy that's actually being offered by this Republican Party. So they're sort of in this kind of lost, kind of confused state where, you know, they want to support the Republican Party. But at the same time, the Republican Party isn't delivering for them. And so the best they can do right now is sort of still be in this Republican Party, but not support President Biden. So it's just this really, I think, confusing situation for young conservatives right now. But at the end of the day, I think if we can all have that conversation with young Republicans and say, look, we might not agree on the outcome, but at least President Biden cares about our lives. And that's undeniable. I think maybe we can move forward. But I mean, yes, they're loud, they're active. And, you know, there are not many of them out there, but they, they I think there is a lot of common ground that we can reach. I mean, four hundred billion is a lot of money yeah, to yeah. spend on a policy. I mean, it's it's massive, right? But and maybe this is what Biden needs to say more: is that America can afford it, yeah. right? I mean, that you know, if you compare it to what it spends on the military or on social security, I mean, it is absolutely in a position to be able to afford it. And I mean, just California, where I am right now, has is the is coming on to be the fourth richest economy in the world as a state right, right. you know it's it, it's just the state it, it you know it used to be fifth it's almost fourth i mean i think the united kingdom was fifth and is now sixth or possibly seventh after brexit i mean things change but the u.s makes huge amounts of revenue and 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 tax revenue and it is completely possible to pay for a policy like this but republicans don't seem to care about that it, it is completely plausible. I mean, you think of, you know, we just got off um, this really intense debt ceiling fight. And you think of the things that they wanted to include in that debt ceiling bill. I mean, cutting programs for veterans, trying to get rid of the student loan forgiveness program. But they increased money for, say, you know, the military and the defense. I'm not saying that's not important, but there are also so many immediate issues that we can... Well, they don't want to go to war, Victor. They don't want to go to war. I wouldn't exactly. mind, but they don't want to go to war. They want to pull back from all of these theaters of war, bring them out of Afghanistan, take them out of Iraq. Let's not have them... I mean, it's like, what do you need the money for? It's a, otherwise, it becomes a socialist program yes, where you're yes. just feeding people to keep them at home. And I mean, the most like hypocritical part about this, and I think the most kind of brazen part about what Republicans are doing right now is, you know, they're saying, you know, we don't want to spend that much money. They're using this kind of disguise of fiscal conservatism. But look what they did during the Trump years. The, the economy, I mean, in terms of the the debt, it went through the roof because Trump spent bill, trillions of dollars. I mean, I think there was a statistic that showed that he contributed more to the debt than you know the past few presidents combined. And Republicans had no problem with that. So, I mean, when it comes time, they do, they can, they do spend money. But because of this administration, they're choosing to say, look, we don't want to spend money on anything that would benefit the common person. That's shameless. But I think what's also you know, we were talking about this, you know, $400 billion being a lot of money. And yes, it's a lot of money. 
But, you know, a lot of the framing, I think, is really important and the way that we talk about this, because a lot of people are saying we're spending $400 billion. We're, yes, we're spending, but that's short term. We're actually investing. And I think the more we can say we're investing in these programs, we're investing in the future generations, we're investing in people who have been saddled by student loan debt, I think that will actually kind of resonate with people out there because investment is just not the same as spending because it's long-term. People understand that it's in, we're in it for the long game. And there's actually a long-term benefit for this. Think about a society in which people don't have to worry about their you know student loans that they have to pay back. Think about a society in which people can actually spend money and contribute to an economy. That's what this program does. But Republicans are trying to say, look, they are just spending money and this is not worth it at all. But in reality, that couldn't be further from the truth, I think. It's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, the 400 billion is not paid on the first day. You know, no. this this is over over a period of, of time. I think it's a decade or, or more. And, no. and isn't this the problem? You know, it's that that the Republican argument is always, you know, about about clickbait headlines. Right. But actually, they never want to offer themselves up to discuss the detail. Right. And, 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 you know, we have to get back to discussing detail because that is really what matters in all of these debates and in all of these um, Supreme Court decisions is that, is that the detail actually, if Republicans only read it and were explained it on an individual basis in a room on their own without other Republicans to show off to, they might actually be like, you know, yeah, I mean, that does sound fair. And that's so much bravado, isn't yeah. it? I mean, that's, I think, what is so disturbing about the moment we're in, I mean, culturally right now, is that um, I don't know if we have that many people in the Republican Party who are willing to do the basic act of reading something or going through something. Because, you know, you mentioned the information ecosystem. I mean, we're living in a time where we have an information ecosystem on the right that feeds them lies day in and day out. And that's why I'm so grateful for your show for just promoting the facts. And that is something that I hope we can all return to as a society. But, you know, I, I'm thinking about the indictment that dropped a couple of weeks ago. I mean, if anyone just spent 30 minutes. I mean, it's not that long of a read. It's very quick, very easy read, very compelling. If anyone with an open mind spent any time reading that indictment, they would come to one conclusion, which is that Donald Trump broke the law, committed a crime, and, you know, he he betrayed our national security and our democracy and rule of law. But you don't have that many people on that side who are willing to do that because all they're willing to do is tune into Fox News or Breitbart or OAN or, you know, um, that type of channel. And they don't do anything else beyond that. And that lack of critical thinking, I think, is going to really affect our society. And that's why so many things that we're trying to do right now, promoting facts, being in this, you know, for the long game, bringing back critical thinking is so important. Um, but I just hope, you know, if anyone is out there who is an independent, who is a former Republican, have that conversation. I know how excruciating it is to have that conversation with a MAGA Republican or with a Republican, but that one conversation can make a huge difference, just kind of guiding them to the light, saying, look, you know, walking them through a policy that President Biden has put out there, saying, you know, these are the details that President Biden is doing, and then really stressing the fact that what are we seeing from the Republican side? Ask those people who are on the Republican side, you know, what is it that you're seeing? Name me one specific thing that Republicans are doing right now that would benefit your lives. And in 99% of the case, you probably can't think of any. I mean, I think of back in 2020, I was a delegate for Joe Biden and I watched the RNC. There was not a single policy platform in that um, uh, convention. And it's because they really have none these days. And I think that's what we have to get out of those Republicans is, you know, why are you supporting them? Ask them what they're supporting. And then they start to think, you know, maybe, you know, I don't have to support them and there isn't anything to support them uh, for. Well, it's it's tribalism, but it's also mixed in with a cult mentality now. Yes, yes. And and this this cult of Trump 
is so powerful that, you know, they don't care. They absolutely don't care that they might be voting for something that will not benefit them because they care more about putting Trump back in the White House. And it's the than, cult, than and I will say, I mean, it's the cult that Trump has built and that I think Trump really unleashed. But it's also Republican elected officials who I think know better than this. And, you know, I, I try not to quote George Will often. You know, he's a conservative columnist and has written a lot about conservatism. But I remember watching him one week on ABC News and he was saying, you know, what the Republican Party has now that's a problem is – Republican elected officials are scared of their voters and because they've unleashed something that, you know, if they say something that is, you know, not conforming with the vast majority of Republican voters, they will get voted out of office. And we saw this right with, you know, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who just came out there, not even policy, just came out there and said January 6th was a coup and Trump was responsible. And they were the only two Republicans who were willing to serve on that committee. And, you know, thank goodness for them. But they got creamed in that election and they got they got voted out of office in huge numbers. And there was another Republican official, if you want to talk about policy out of New York, um, a member of the House who said, I am for banning assault weapons. His he got booted out of the Republican Party by his by his base. And it's that type of, I think, kind of disease that has infested the Republican Party that I think is going to be really hard to undo because they are scared of their um, voters and and Republican elected officials who know better than this. I mean, I'm thinking of people like Josh Hawley, who is Yale educated, Stanford law educated, people like Ted Cruz, Princeton, Harvard, who go to these elite institutions, who I'm sure are smart or else they wouldn't have been able to pass the bar exam. But they aren't even willing to acknowledge facts, and that is what's most, I think, pernicious. But they've been radicalized, Victor. They've been I mean, radicalized. This is the problem. They've been radicalized, right. and and right. you know, people like Josh Hawley. You know, he is a he is a far right Christian nationalist. You know, yeah. he in 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 only like a decade ago, he would have been considered fringe, right? And 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 now it's the fringe that has become the mainstream. Right. right. Exactly. And you hit the nail on the head, and and it's like. That's become the mainstream, but but that's what voters don't understand is that sure it's become the mainstream within the Republican Party, but Republican elected officials know better than that. I mean, they they know that what they're telling their voters is a lie. They know that what they're doing is all for culture and and politics and power, but they aren't willing to admit that. And until we can get to a place where we can have more conservatives like Chris Christie, who I'm sure a lot of you know us listening right now and and who's tuning in disagree with vehemently on policy, but at least he's willing to stand up. But he come, it's few and far between in this Republican Party. Well, at least Chris Christie has some common sense when it comes <laughs> to things like January sixth. Right. You know, like what we saw with our own eyes is what happened, and unfortunately, what Republicans have managed to do, Republican leadership, I should say, because I don't think that Republican voters are the same as Republican leadership. You know, I think that the leadership has become so radicalized and so extreme. And obviously, they're the ones that are putting out the messaging. And so the voters become radicalized as a consequence of that. But there really is a mis a misrepresentation going on, because we'll probably see in the general election next year that, you know, Trump is not as popular as he thinks he is. And the these, you know, extremist and, and, and far right views are not the majority opinion in the country. But they do make a lot of noise. They do shout the loudest. And that's why people are getting the impression that America is having this kind of lurch to the right. And actually, at the, at the, you know, in the polling place, it might be a different story. You're so right. I mean, they are the loudest. They are, you know, really out there. And, and they're, the whole point of it is to make us exhausted and fearful and, and 
and you know, in some parts of the country, it's worked. But it's so important for anyone watching this to know that there are more of us than there are of them. There, are, I, I believe it to my core, where there are more people who, at the end of the day, want to see normalcy, who want to love just as a normal human being, who want to just have a normal life. Um, and, and we saw that in the midterm elections. I mean, the number of people and, and those people who believe in that are majority young, majority diverse. They see through what Republicans are doing. And we saw in 2022 where, you know, you had so many far right extreme candidates run for office. And, you know, I don't have the number on the top of my head, but, you know, the number of Trump back candidates who won was very slim, actually. You think of states like Arizona, Kerry Lake lost. His um, attorney general that he backed lost. I mean, you saw a wave of Republicans just lose. And it's probably because you saw young people really turn out to vote. And that's what I think is so important for all of us to recognize is, yes, they're out there, but their movement, I think, is really becoming um, slimmer and slimmer. And the most important thing for people to realize is don't let that noise and um, you know distraction uh, prevent you from going out there and doing the most important thing, which is registering and voting. And um, that is what is, you know, the challenge ahead of us is, you know, responding to that and getting everyone out there that we know to vote. Because if we just do that, if we just get the people we know to vote and really understand that this is an election that we cannot sit out, um, then I think we're, we're OK. But that's, again, the, the challenge. You've done the phones, you've done door knocking, you've done all this campaigning, you know, like grassroots campaign work. And you're 21. Like How? How? How did it happen for you? Like, what was the catalyst for that? Was it that kind of sense of injustice? Because that's kind of what moved me, really, was just, just the whole injustice of it all. But I also want to ask you how many, you know, let me get my question right. Is it that young people, because there is this kind of, you know, because Gen Z has a different access to information, Gen Z is not watching Fox and is not watching Newsmax and, and One American Network. They're just not watching those channels like their parents or grandparents are. That their access to information is far more broad because it's through Instagram or through Facebook or through or through Snapchat, other you know, other forms of communication. How many other Victor Shees are out there is my question. Um, I'll, I'll just first question first because I think they're they're really interconnected. Um, the way that I got into politics wasn't actually through you know outrage. I wish I could have that story of you know I saw this thing and I you know that inspired me to take action. But really, I was in eighth grade and I was just a regular eighth grader who played video games, didn't really care about the world. But I think this speaks to the power of individual conversations and the power of parents and adults around us. I was inspired by my eighth grade social studies teacher because we were it was a couple of weeks before the Iowa caucuses in 2016. She sat us all down and told us what the political spectrum was, what Republicans believed in and what Democrats believed in, and the power that we had as young people. And that really resonated to me to know that I could be a part of a community bigger than myself. And so ever since then, it's been just kind of a whirlwind. And I think that's what, you know, brings a lot of people to the fold is knowing that they have a stake in this process and they, you know, can also make a difference. And I think that speaks to the power of if you're an adult listening out there, if you're a teacher, if you're just anyone who has a young person in your life, have that conversation because it really only takes one person to inspire change and a movement. So that's important. But I think related to your second question, um, it's not just, you know, individual conversations. We're living in, in a time where young people have access to more information than ever before. I mean, the number of people in Gen Z who has a social media platform, I believe is 98% of us have at least one social media platform, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, there's at least one social media platform. And so what does that mean? That means we are always kind of looking for information. What's on our phones, every single time we open that app, we are seeing the news. Sure, it might be short form and content, and that's a whole nother conversation. Sure, it might be only the headlines. Sure, it might be you know a, a short video that doesn't give us the big picture, but it informs us, and that's what we're seeing. We are seeing these things in real time happening. It's through a snap of a finger. You know, you hear about 
a Supreme Court overturning the right to an abortion, we can find out about it within minutes. And if you're just a young person who doesn't really care about it and who goes on your Instagram and sees that for the first time, who doesn't really care about politics, you're like, wow, I mean, I could not believe that that was possible, that a Supreme Court could overturn a right. And that's why I think the power of social media comes in. And that's why I think messengers are so important. But, you know, you asked if there are more Victor She's out there. And that's what's most inspiring to me is that there are so many Victor She's out there who are out there doing the good work, engaging in the good fight, who are engaging on social media, having these conversations, advocating for that issue, those issues. And it's because of you know social media platforms, but it's also because of the moment that we're in politically, where it's harder and harder for young people just to sit back and see so many of our peers coming under attack. We have to take a quick break for our sponsor, but we'll come back and uh, talk more here on The Weekend Show. This show is sponsored by Lomi. I have a big family, and, well, that means there's usually a lot of trash left over by the time the week comes to an end. And frankly, I used to feel a bit guilty about this. But then I got a Lomi. Now that I have a Lomi, it's changed the way I think about my food waste. Lomi transforms my garbage into gold at the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps into dirt in under four hours. Now, I love composting, plus it's made cooking at home even more fun. There's no food rotting in the garbage and smelling up the kitchen. Thanks to Lomi, I only have to take the trash out once a week, and it's a hassle-free, mess-free experience. No more leaking bags. Here's something cool too. I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants, lawn, or garden. That means it's not going to landfill and producing methane gas. I get to help the environment and make my life easier. And all my food scraps, plant clippings, and even those leftovers I forgot in the back of my refrigerator go back into my garden, helping me grow more nutritious food right in my backyard. I learned that food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. By reducing the amount of food I send to landfill, I'm helping do my part for the planet while also feeding my garden. Whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash weekend and use promo code weekend to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to lomi.com slash weekend and use promo code weekend at checkout. Thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. Everyone knows how annoying cheap razors are. The cuts, the irritation, the frustration. And don't get me started with subscription razor services. The headaches those can cause. That's why you've got to meet Henson Shaving. Henson Shaving is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that has made parts for the International Space Station and Mars Rover. And now they're bringing precision engineering to your shaving experience. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble. The more wobble, the more nicks, cuts and scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes metal razors that extend just 0.0013 inches, which is less than the thickness of a human hair. That means a secure and stable blade with a vibration-free shave. And it gets better. The razor has built-in channels to evacuate hair and cream, which makes clogging virtually impossible. Seriously, Henson Shaving wants to be the best razor, not the best razor business. That means no plastic, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. 
The Henson razor works with standard dual-edged blades to give you that old-school shave with the benefits of new-school tech. Once you own a Henson razor, it's only about $3 to $5 per year to replace the blades. My first shave with the Henson razor was incredibly refreshing. The design is sleek, the durability is top-notch. The Henson razor is truly so much better than your run-of-the-mill, quote-unquote, traditional razor brand. And the affordability factor is absolutely game-changing. No more wasting your money on expensive blades. With Henson shaving, you can get a year of blades for $5. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com weekend to pick the razor for you and use code weekend and you'll get two years worth of blades free with your razor. Just make sure you add them to your cart. That's 100 free blades when you head to hensonshaving.com slash weekend and use code weekend. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made's bed sheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver-infused fabrics and makes temperature-regulating bedding, so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver-infused fabrics originally inspired by NASA, Miracle-Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long, so you get a better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice if not nicer than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing breakouts and acne. Sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash weekend to try Miracle-Made sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo code WEEKEND at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash weekend and use the code weekend to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. That's trymiracle.com slash weekend to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. We're back with Victor Shee. I'm Anthony Davis. It's the weekend show, and we are reacting to the uh, Supreme Court decisions that have uh, caused havoc, really, for anybody that has a, a progressive mindset, or even what I would like to think a normal mindset, just just normalcy. You know, you know, these aren't extreme decisions, and and it's really. You know, Rose started it a year ago, but winding the clock back 50 years in terms of equal rights for minority groups. I want to talk specifically now about the um, court driven by its extremist supermajority, this, you know, courtesy of Donald Trump putting three, three kind of far right 
Christian nationalists into into those SCOTUS positions. On Thursday ended race-conscious admissions at universities across the country, tossing out decades of precedent in American life and delivering a huge blow to the cause of greater student diversity on campuses. People don't really understand what affirmative action is all about, do they? It's like it's actually quite a complex thing. And if you are white and privileged, you absolutely like can't wrap your head around it. And I've heard some commentators who are white and privileged who are just so blind to the plight of life for people who are not white and wealthy. And I include young people as well as, you know, older adults. Just tell me how you felt when you heard about this decision that was uh, ruled on Thursday. You're so right. Not many people know about affirmative action. The people who do talk about affirmative action, I mean, some of the narratives are so destructive and so dangerous, I think, because at the end of the day, affirmative action was created to expand opportunity for the people who otherwise wouldn't be able to access higher education. And one of the things that we've seen through this whole debate about affirmative action is just me being Asian American, is that they come up with this model minority myth that somehow all Asians are perfect. And there are very big, not very big, I think a very small and select few Asian Americans who are out there pushing this narrative and, and people who are, you know, I think propped up by the right who use Asian Americans and these, you know, select few Asian Americans as a proxy for all Asian Americans. The reality is that most Asian Americans actually are very supportive of affirmative action because it benefits us too. Most people think, well, you know, Asian Americans get hurt, you know, every Asian American who is applying to colleges, it's perfect. And that's why Asian Americans aren't getting into universities. And so therefore what Harvard and these colleges are doing hurts Asian Americans first. It's, that's just not true. There is no evidence that supports that. You look at colleges where, you know, affirmative action is in place. Asian Americans benefit from that. I mean, Asian Americans are not excluded from, you know, Harvard. They are actually, you know, they stand to benefit a lot from this. But at the end of the day, this is about expanding opportunity for underprivileged racial minorities. And that's what I think so many people can't really wrap their minds around and, and support because you're if you're white, if you have a lot of privilege at a place like Harvard, for instance, the people who have been able to get into Harvard historically are people who are white, rich and legacy. And that's the really big driver. If you look at the Harvard class, I think it's nearly half of their class is driven by legacy admissions. And you can think about kind of the outrage that it would cause to hear about, you know, well, we're going to accept someone who's never been to Harvard, who might not otherwise be able to afford Harvard, and they're able to get in, but, you know, the legacy people will, will not be able to get in. That's that's sort of the lack of compassion and empathy that I think is driving so much of this. But at the end of the day, it's about fairness. And it's about also creating a diverse kind of student body. It's about making sure that when you're in a classroom, when you're in a seminar classroom, say at Harvard or any other public college or university or private institution, that you can get access to a different array of um, viewpoints and, and, and resources and also, you know, students and friends. And that's what really matters to an educational experience is what happens in the classroom. Sure, there's a lot of information, but also what your peers think. And that's what I think affirmative action really strives to do. And in places where they've struck down affirmative action, it's been very hard to create that diverse student body that affirmative action seeks to create. And so I think my reaction after seeing this was, you know, it's not a surprise, um, but, you know, it, it is it is something that I think is is so kind of indicative of this culture because the very same people who struck this program down, people like Clarence Thomas, are the same ones who benefited from this program. And that's why I think we saw so much outrage from Katanji Brown-Jackson, who is like Clarence Thomas, a Harvard-educated black person who said to benefit from this affirmative action. But that's the type of response. What Katanji Brown-Jackson did, that's the type of outrage and fury that I think everyone should be feeling. Well, she said it, this decision means that it's going to take longer for racism to leave us. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is 
the fundamental point here that it's just a racist decision. It's, it's because the white people making decisions, they don't want black people to succeed. They don't want brown people to, to get on in life. They want to maintain the white supremacy. And these, all of these decisions are, are kind of baked into their long-term view of the world, is that the, the white man should reign supreme. And, and if there's any policy that can be in place that prevents people of color or minority groups from actually becoming educated or getting good jobs or, you know, being future decision makers, they're not, not going to allow it to happen. No. And, and I think for me, one of the most kind of disturbing parts of this opinion was, you know, they kept on saying, well, Asian Americans are the ones who aren't getting to these colleges. But if they really cared about Asian Americans, they would have revamped the admissions process to make it easier for Asian Americans to, you know, access, you know, college. But what they did is they still left in place a lot of those, you know, throughout the decision, they kept on referring to different kind of points within the admissions process that made it harder for Asian Americans to, you know, stand out in an admissions decision. But, you know, if, if they really cared about us, they would have struck all of those down. So, for instance, they would have said the personal rating score will be out, but they they didn't. They held that in place. So a lot of these things they're still upholding. And what I think is even more disturbing is, you know, the next day um, they, they said that it's OK for businesses to, um, you know, discriminate or to have preferential treatment on the basis of gender and orientation. But then they said that, you know, colleges shouldn't be able to discriminate against the you know basis of race. So it's like logically speaking, it's like, you know, why, how is gender different from race if it's really at least even playing field, I mean, all of these things should be taken into an account during an admissions process. But if you're saying one day that someone can discriminate you based off of your sexual orientation and then the next day saying that, you know, you can't discriminate against someone because they're a specific race. I mean, there's just such a disconnect. And that's the sort of hypocrisy and anger that I think so many people are seeing right now. It's just, it's so messed up and in so many different ways. And, um, you know, who, who's going to benefit the most from this? I think it's going to be your typical white person who applies to college who comes from a you know, really, really rich background. And, you know, there's been a lot of people out there who say, well, you know, they still open the uh, the the door for um, black people and Latino people to write about their, their you know, personal lived experiences through an essay. But I think Ellie Mistel, who is a writer at The Nation, said it the best, where why should these people be writing about their personal experiences when they have so much more to write about? You know, why should people be forced to write about racism and, and what they've you know went through when they could be writing about any other thing? I mean, we shouldn't be placing that burden on, on students, but unfortunately, we're in this place where that seems to be the only way that, um, you know, black Latino students can actually talk about their race. And that's, I think, really unfortunate. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where people, you know, because I have a view that the stuff, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? So once this stuff is out, it's like, it's going to take a significant shift to, to right all of these wrongs. And, and, you know, even getting white people to understand that black people have a tougher start in life, right? Or some black people, not all black people, but, uh, and I include, you know, all minority groups, that, that it is not an even playing field. Because before we even get into Supreme Court decisions, just in society, there does seem to be this kind of disconnect. People are just disassociating from this subject. They cannot get their heads around the fact that some people will have a benefit in life because racism is systemic and baked into so much of society. And I mean, look, you know, Republicans tried to blame coronavirus on Asian Americans yeah. and hate crimes went up. I mean, it, it, it's like it's beggar's belief. And yet this is a normal part of, of, of U.S. society now is to is to blame anybody but 
themselves. Is there any chance that, you know, how much has to change for these types of decisions to be reversed? I, I think the only way that we can change this, honestly, is through elections and voting in people who actually care about these things, because Republicans are only doing this because I think they have a false sense of security over power, over being elected. You know, the way that our House of Representatives is set up is in a way where, you know, you have many people in very safe districts and they get elected time and time again. And so they never learn, actually, you know, what it means to not have power. I mean, you know, they don't control the Senate, but they very much control the House. And that's really that really matters. And I think the only way we can kind of teach them that lesson and to show them what the vast majority of Americans care about is to vote. And that's, you know, I know it sounds cheesy because we always say, you know, every election is the most important election. But if we really want to put an end to this Republican Party and show them what Americans care about, we just have to do that. We just have to go out there and vote because in 2024, you know, if we allow Republicans to take advantage, to to win back office, they're never going to stop this. And that's what keeps them going is this lust for power. But the moment that we can show them that they aren't immune from their actions that, you know, the whole saying when they mess around, they will find out they really haven't found out recently. You know, we saw this throughout and you mentioned um, Trump packing the courts. They've spent 50 years trying to do this, you know, right after Roe versus Wade was passed by the Supreme Court was was decided. They spent 50 years trying to, you know, pack the courts. And that's something that I will say for Republicans has been really beneficial. But one of the things we're seeing right now is people are finding out people are, you know, really opening their eyes to what Republicans have been doing. And they're seeing the consequences of that. And I think, you know, 2022 was an indication of that. They don't seem to be learning, but we have to make them learn in 2024. And that starts by doing the work. I know it seems far out from 2024, November, but we just have to do the work. There's no other option, I think. So let's talk about Democrat strategy, because I posted on Twitter on uh, Friday morning, I said my point about the legacy of Trump has sadly been proven again. The man might not be president, but his foul fascism lingers. The Supreme Court is Trump, as are the 234 federal judges he confirmed. Biden needs to change his strategy. Pack the court. Use every loophole. Go low. Now, I'm, I'm referring to, you know, Michelle Obama's famous line, they, they go low, we go high. But I, I actually believe that now that Republicans have proven that they will not play by the rules, that, that you know, Biden has got this thing of, you know, he doesn't want to pack the court because then he thinks it's like it, 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 it will be never ending and it's unfair. And it's like, well, you know, how will there ever be change if one side is just doing their own thing and the other side is sticking to rules that were written 100 years ago? Your story. I mean, how do we play by the rules when the other side doesn't even acknowledge the rules and are willing to yeah. burn the entire place down? It's just you can't live in a society in which one party is just so committed to doing anything that benefits them, even if it means destroying democracy. And so I, I, it's the same reason why we need to get rid of the filibuster, because that's a rule that was you know, put in place during a time when it benefited slave owners and when it benefited you know, um, uh, racism. And so that, I think, is so true, what you just said, and you hit the nail on the head. But in terms of democratic strategy, I agree with you. you know, Michelle Obama had that one quote, when they go low, we go high. But we really just have to get on their level because they are so shameless. They will never learn. They will never play. They will never be decent people. And we have to be able to call them out. You know, And part of this whole strategy, and I think what the White House has done pretty well, is they've adopted this sort of meme that's gone viral, which is dark branding, which is, you know, be be unafraid to call these Republicans. You know, there was once a time where we would, you know, we want to play by the rules. We wanted to get along with each other. We want to believe that bipartisanship exists. 
But there just is not that anymore. I mean, you have a Republican Party that is willing to obstruct and and obliterate anything, anything that this administration has done. You just look at the debt ceiling fight. They were willing to send our nation to default for the first time in decades. And that was something that they were perfectly comfortable with doing. And it took weeks of negotiation to get them to even come to the table. And I think that's what's, what everyone in America needs to understand is, is this level of kind of shamelessness by this Republican Party. And, and every Democrat, every turn needs to kind of present that contrast and show what both parties are doing right now. And I think the record speaks for itself, where you're seeing the Democratic Party actually do so much. I mean, think about what happened during the first two years of uh, President Biden's administration when he had when he had a majority in the Senate, in the House. Um, we actually got stuff done, like huge things done. But once a Republican turned over, you don't see many things happening anymore. And it's because Republicans just aren't willing to come to the table and do things that would benefit people. And And that's the I think thing about elections is it's not a referendum. It is it, it, sorry, it's, it's not a refer- referendum. I mean, it is a contrast. It is a choice election. It is all about choice, and it's all about you know w- what choices are before you. And the choice cannot be clearer. I think in in twenty twenty four. So that's I think part of the messaging. And we can get more specific if you want. But they, they hate him, Victor. Like yeah, they yeah. they hate him. They think he's evil. And you know, and so then they make memes of him being too tactile with people, and then they make him out to be a pedophile and. All of this crazy stuff, like, and, and it's that propaganda, it's that misinformation yeah. that has built this movement of hatred towards somebody who is probably one of the kindest, if not the kindest, most compassionate presidents America has ever had. And I mean, I mean it is, it's just a mis, the whole thing is a miscommunication. Miscommunication. And I, and I will say, too, I mean, Part of the problem also is traditional media. I mean, you look at the things that traditional media are focusing on right now. I mean, yes, they give Biden credit for some things, but most of what they're focusing on, there was a poll and not a poll. There was a report the other day that found the number of minutes that the media focused on President Biden's age was astronomically higher than President Trump. And not just by like a couple of minutes. I think on Morning Joe, they spent 100 more minutes talking about President Biden's age than President Trump's age. I mean, they're only three years apart. And if you look at two, I mean, sure, Biden has occasional gaffes and you know he has a stutter. But Trump is deeply unwell. I mean, you look at kind of the things that he does and says, I mean, they're just not normal. So if you're talking about age, you have to give equal time to both sides. You can't just give hundreds of more minutes to President Biden because that's just unfair. But they will cling on to things for this president. And it's one of my biggest kind of pet peeves because this president has shown time and time again that he will deliver, that this you know age is not preventing him from doing things. That's, I think it's one thing to say, well, age might be preventing you. And, think, and I think that's why it's so fair for a lot of people to say, well, look, someone like Dianne Feinstein, for instance, you know, her age is legitimately preventing her from serving the people of California. And, and illness as well. And I illness, mean, off the right, back of right. getting shingles, she, yeah. she got something else and she didn't even know that she'd not been at work. I mean, when she was asked, where have you been? She's like, I've been here the whole time. I mean, yeah, in that situation, you know, that is incompatible with with being a lawmaker. But with Biden, as you say, like, for example, he he did his Bidenomics speech this week as well, right, where he talked about the economy and he bragged about the successes you know the the employment rate never been never been higher uh inflation is a worldwide issue but it's being beaten down growth at four percent it's it's all very positive but the media did not cover it both both the the newspapers online and television they did not cover it and all i really saw was right-wing uh, commentators saying what a terrible job biden had done of the uh, of the economy and it's like are you living in a different on a different planet to me? Because it is simply not true, and and this desire to kind of 
it's so unpatriotic to not want to if your if your economy as a country is doing well especially off the back of a pandemic celebrate it you know be want it to grow want to be part of that because you will benefit directly the idea that you would just lie about it say it's doing worse than it is and 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 just to rubbish your opponent is just it's so un-american it is so un-american and it's and it's such a problem because it's like we need a media that is responsible that will deliver facts to the people but it's just biased in so many different ways and it's like and it's why you know no one really watches cable news anymore it's, it's because you have cable news focusing on the same thing every single time they're more focused on Trump's plane taking off and landing during the indictment yeah. that they are actually about what our current president of the United States is saying. I mean, I think about just this week, um, President Biden unveiled. I mean, it's not the most sexy headline, and I will admit that, but it is something that will benefit everyone in America. And that was his um, plan to invest in broadband and internet across America. Yeah. I mean, the first state that would be- the state that would benefit the most from it is Texas. I mean, they got a billion, more than a billion dollars in funding for this, but you didn't hear one media outlet cover that event live. And those are the type of things that the media should be covering live. You know, I, I do agree. You know, the, the indictment is important. But if you're going to cover Trump's plane taking off, you should also cover a historic thing like President Biden unveiling this historic program that is not really political, that would benefit Republicans and Democrats. There is nothing political about covering a, a, a president who would benefit people. and But they cling on to time and time again. And the other day we saw more coverage from Bloomberg on President Biden's sleep apnea machine, CPAP, rather than yeah. actually cover, you know, the fact that he delivered on so many issues. And it's just, I think, really disruptive for a democracy, for their viewers. And it's why, you know, we need so many more people online, outlets like this, Midas Touch, really just going out there and actually focusing on the things that people care about, which is not age. They want to care about what is this administration doing for people. And once people understand that, they will see that they've been doing a lot, and it's, and it's important. Let's talk about the third uh, Supreme Court ruling this week. On Friday, the uh, Supreme Court ruled that a Christian graphic artist who wants to design wedding websites can refuse to work with same-sex couples. Uh, one of the court's liberal justices wrote in a dissent that the decision's effect is to mark gays and lesbians for second-class status and that the decision opens the door to other discrimination. I mean, this is another example of how anybody that does not fit this kind of perfect white Christian cisgender Republican mold is going to be marginalized as long as this structure of the Supreme Court remains. Um, And this is going to open the door to discrimination on every level because of this of this ruling. Um, what, what was your reaction when you heard this? I mean, I, I want to have the ability to be shocked, but I, I don't because this Repub- <laughs> because this right wing court is so has proven time and time again that it won't kind of side with the American people. And sure, we have glimmers of instances in which you know they do the right thing um, on things like the independent state legislature theory. But even on that, I mean, there were three Republican justices who were willing to completely overturn that theory and say elections can be uh, up to state legislatures without any judicial review. I mean, that is scary to me. But in terms of the issue that we're talking about, this LGBTQ plus one with this um, website designer, I mean, it is, I think the implications will be so far reaching because it's not just, um, you know, this one specific business. It's They, they said it's okay for any business to do yeah. this, to basically say that if we are uncomfortable with your same-sex marriage, we can deny you service on the basis that, you know, our religion doesn't agree with it. And that is, 
I, I cannot overstate just how dangerous that is. And it's why all of us, especially, you know, in a society where it's becoming more diverse, where we're looking at a generation that is more sexually diverse, more racially diverse. I mean, these are the things that run directly against kind of Gen Z. And that's why you're seeing a lot of Gen Zers just completely losing faith in the uh, Supreme Court as an institution to be able to do the right thing. It's just hard to believe in the Supreme Court anymore. And, and it's decisions like this one that prove why. And the first to lose are young people who are living up, who are living in this world in which this is the new reality for us. Biden said this is no ordinary court. Mm-mm. And he's exactly right. I mean, it's just not a normal court. And like I like we said, the outro of the show and the intro of the show, I mean, the Supreme Court has never been perfect. I mean, we've seen decisions time and time again that have rolled us back, um, you know, Plessy v. Ferguson, all these decisions, Voting Rights Act. I mean, but at the end of the day, we've never seen it act in the way that it is now. And part of it is because Trump has elected these three Republican justices who care more about power and kind of and feel like they're invincible and come from this world that is so out of touch, so disconnected from the rest of the world that, you know, we just are living in a court that cannot operate under a court that used to exist. I mean, we cannot look at this court and say, we have confidence that they will do the right thing. And I, I host another podcast with um, Jill Banks called iGen Politics, and she comes from the Watergate era. And she always reminds me, there was a time that no matter what your party was, if you were a judge or a justice on the Supreme Court, um, no one would doubt that. You know, No one would doubt in your ability to reach the right conclusion if you were a Republican or a Democrat. People just, at the end of the day, there are some things that we can come together on, but that's just no longer the case. And I think that's going to be really dangerous because, as we all know, these Supreme Court justices sit there for a lifetime. And, um, and until they die or until they choose to step down, we are sort of stuck in this reality, which is why there's so many urgent um, calls to reform the court and find ways to move forward. And I am so supportive of that. You mentioned the rest of the world. I mean, that is a big thing for me coming from Europe. And, and well, I used to come from Europe. Apparently, I'm not from Europe anymore. But, uh, but you know, the rest of the world is so much more progressive. And it's considered normal to be someone that wants everybody to be able to express themselves how they like and where women have the right to make decisions about their own health care and where, you know, there is a, a better equality in the workplace. You know, in Europe, there are more women in the in the boardroom than there are in the U.S., which is a, a pathetic number of, of uh, you know, girls versus boys. And, and we really need to kind of wake up, I think, here in the U.S. to the fact that the rest of the world has moved on. And I mean, how is America going to be able to compete on the world stage internationally in terms of trade and politically when these decisions are winding the U.S. back to like 1952? Yeah, I mean, they're rolling the clock back, which is why it's also so concerning and so alarming is that, you know, we should not be going back in history. Like, I don't know why we need to have this conversation in 2023, why, you know, it's so bold to say that we should not be rolling back, you know, the clock. But we just that that but that's what's happening right now. And like you said, you know, we, we don't live in a vacuum because America and the promise and just the status that we have as a you know country is one where people look view us, at least traditionally, as sort of the democracy on the shining hill. We are a beacon on the shining hill. We are the leader of the free world when it comes to at least professing our values of democracy and, and trying to, you know, push that forward. But when you have decisions like this, it just 
ruins confidence in so many different ways when you're an international when you're a country that's trying to you know do something you will point to the, to the u.s now and say look you guys aren't doing it. you know what gives you the ability to say we should promote democracy i mean and that is destructive because that ruins our standing in the world it, it, there's just a really big international problem with this too and it just reminds me of you know what happened on january 6th is you know the world is watching what's happening here people are paying attention and when if you're living abroad if you're if you're looking at us we are more similar now to a place like China and Russia and North Korea than um, the rest of the free world and civilized democracy. And it's not, unfortunately, it's not an overstatement to say that because you have Republicans across the state limiting basic things. And and this is where I have so much respect for people who study authoritarianism and fascism and why they should be elevated and amplified as much as can be. You know, people like Ruth Ben-Ghiat, people like Timothy Snyder, um, who are out there warning us that the first thing that fascists try to do and authorians try to do is come after the ability to learn, is to come after young people and our education. It's because once you can control that, you can basically, you know, manipulate an entire generation. That is scary. And that's why all of us have to be alarmed by this and pay attention and make sure that people like Ron DeSantis never get anywhere close to office ever again and Republicans across the country don't. We have to finish in just a moment. I, I noticed that we haven't really used the T word very much during this conversation, which I'm very grateful for because um, I'm, try- I'm trying to kind of exorcise myself of, of, that, of that creature. But, you know, he, it was announced uh, the other day that there's a good chance, or there was a, there was a kind of piece in the Independent, the British Independent, saying that there's a good chance that Jack Smith has got another potentially 50 more charges for Donald Trump, which could then change the, uh, the primary for the Republicans, and it could certainly change the result in 2024. Just looking forward, as a final question for you, you know, how do you think this is going to play out? And who do you think is going to be up there against Joe Biden for, for the general election in November next year? I mean, unfortunately, I think it's still going to be Donald Trump. I, I hope <laughs> that there is a same Republican out there. But if you look at the support among Trump voters after both indictments, and I know we haven't um, talked much about Trump, but if we talk about Trump moving forward, I think we should all get behind, you know, like twice impeached, twice indicted, you know, found liable for sexual assault. I mean, all of these things are just so true and it matters because the more we can remind people that this is who he is, I think it'll um, really be important for kind of getting through to, you know, moderates and people who just want normalcy. But in terms of who's going to end up on that debate stage, I still think it's going to be Trump. You have Republicans ending up supporting him more um, after his indictments than before. And it's just like his grip on the party is still there because you have Republican elected officials, um, you know, maybe the few people like Liz Cheney and Chris Christie who are willing to speak up, but the vast majority of them continue to defend him, continue to rally around him. And that um, is, and that reflects um, in the Republican Party. And I think that is, you know, at least in the primary election, it's Trump's game to lose. And I can't think of another Republican who can get close to the support that he has in the primary, um, partly because also most Republicans won't even invoke the Trump name. They think that if he doesn't, they don't attack him, then somehow they'll get his voters. It's just not going to be a winning strategy. But um, I still think it'll be Trump and Biden. But if it is Trump, I think that just makes Biden's job easier. Um, People now, I mean, there aren't many people who are persuadables in that camp anymore. The people who support Trump are the people who will support Trump. And um, it's just now the, the people who we have to reach are those moderates and just activating our side. But I think running against Trump um, is good news for us because we have a lot, a lot to work with. It, it does seem, doesn't it, that an indictment is a badge of honor, an impeachment is a badge of honor. And in a way, you know, this is why I don't think that, you know, assault weapons will be banned because it's like every school shooting seems to 
mean that Republicans are like, let's get more guns out there. I mean, it's like we're living in the upside down, Victor. I mean, like nothing is straightforward in this country. No, and Nicole Wallace has this great saying, which she always does on um, these moments, which is, I mean, it really feels like there's Earth One, which is, you know, people like you and me, people who are watching, who operate from a place of facts. I'm not saying, you know, the entire left is like us, but the vast majority of them, I think, exist in Earth One, where facts are actually what we care about. And there's Earth Two, where it's just everything that, you know, happens is flipped upside down. It's lies, it's misinformation, it's petty nonsense. And it's like, what will it take to merge those two Earths together? I, I don't know, but it's going to take some heavy lifting. Yeah. I was watching Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade the other day because I'm about to go and see the new movie. <laughs> and there's a great line in it from Harrison Ford where he says, facts are, and truth are not the same thing. Yes, yes. And I thought, and I thought that was kind of really interesting. Right, right. Had a, had a lot is. of... Uh, ramifications for today um listen thank you so much for for coming on and i know you've been busy this week because uh, everybody wants a piece of you and your opinion it's almost like you are the spokesperson for gen z these days so uh, well done and um uh, hopefully we can speak again and listen yeah. good luck with everything that you do and and i really do hope there are more victor she's out there because you know you're setting a great example there are and that's the best part about it and thank you so much for having me on and Thank you for all the work that you do um, and, and just kind of promoting facts and getting the facts out there and mobilizing um, our side. Um, it's really important, and I'm happy to come back anytime you meet. My pleasure. My thanks to Victor Shee. I'm Anthony Davis. Subscribe to MAGA Uncovered, my new show with Ron Filipkowski. Don't forget to support me and independent journalism on patreon.com slash five-minute news and download the daily five-minute news podcast. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the five-minute news weekend show with Midas Touch. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.